now. <laughs> Let's get this web Guys. conference on the way. Uh, tēnā tato katoa e hui mai nei e ata. Greetings to all of you who have gathered here this morning. Haere mai, welcome to the Learns What's the Plan Stand field trip. But before we get underway, we'll begin with a karakia. Una hia te pō, te pō, te kia te ao, te ao, whatitanga, tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahora. Hui e, hui e, tai ki e. So, Morena Tato. Good morning, everybody. I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's 20 past nine on Wednesday, 14th of October, the day before shakeouts. Um, New Zealand shakeout, our national earthquake drill and tsunami hiko. I hope you all signed up and ready to practice your drop cover hold and going up to your tsunami safe zones. Uh, so, We've got our expert this morning, Brad Scott from GNS Science. Good morning, Brad. We've also got some ambassadors with us. Of course, we've got Stan Jr., Stan of What's the Plan, Stan Fame. So he's been tagging along with our other ambassadors, Eddie the Phil. Our blue duck and... Tiaki, the Tiaki comes from uh, St. Joseph's Catholic School in All Portuguese. Yeah. So they've been having a great time. Actually, you can check out what um, Eddie and Tiaki have been up to. They've got their own page on the Field Trip website. And we're back at Matata Public School. So Matata is about 20 to 25 minutes drive out of Whakatane where we've been staying this week. And the weather is really nice today. We had a difficult day yesterday and some driving wind and rain. So it's lovely to see the sun shining and some blue skies, which will make our filming today for you guys to see some great videos again tomorrow. And the videos from yesterday are on the website now, so you can go to the videos page to check them out. Also, the videos are within the Google Earth Tour, which is a neat way to experience the field trip and go to the different locations that we went that we go to throughout the field trip week. So, um, Brad is our expert this morning. Brad, would you like to introduce yourself uh, again and just, but this time, just share a little bit about the work that you do so that we have an idea of the sorts of questions we can ask you. Yeah, good morning everybody, Marina. Um, yeah, I'm Brad Scott, I'm a geologist specialised in volcano geology, so I work on volcanoes, I live in Rotorua and I work in technical science. I've been working here for 27 years, I think it is, um, on the volcanoes and the earthquakes in the Bay of Plenty, and I had the privilege in 1987 of experiencing the Edge earthquake and Myself and another colleague were the, the first scientists to reach there. We looked after landslides. So I was a lot to do with earthquakes and a lot to do with volcanoes. And, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about earthquakes today. So I just had a message from Barry. I need to get nice and close and speak, um, speak a bit clearer. So, okay. So, um, so yeah, we'll just, we'll just make sure we're nice and clear um, and close when we're answering the questions. So uh, Brad's a scientist and, and he specialises in 
Did you say volcanology? Volcanoes, but um, Brad's talking with us today about earthquakes as well, so he knows a lot about those, and that's really our focus today. So yesterday we looked at tsunami with uh, Graham Leonard, also from GNS Science, and and Brad's going to talk with us today about earthquakes, looking um, at the Edgecombe earthquake. In fact, I had family in that earthquake, so um, you know I know a little bit about it. Interesting, you say, Brad, that you had the privilege of um, being part of that earthquake. What, what do you mean by that? As a scientist, um, you know, in your career, you sometimes only have one or two opportunities to deal with a major event. And earthquakes like Edgecombe occur about every 100 years. Um, the large earthquakes in New Zealand don't occur very often. So if you specialise or work on something like a, a large earthquake like Edgecombe, you, know, you may only experience one in your working career. Um, so yeah, that's where I was coming from. Um, have that opportunity to actually see what an earthquake does, see the damage, and um, you know, work with the community afterwards on the repair. Yeah, it's um, it, it's I'm interested in, the, in what you said there because you know I was in Christchurch when when those two the two major earthquakes um, of that sequence occurred. The first one I was just pretty freaked out, but once I started to learn more about the geology behind it, I became really interested in, and, and then almost I, I put my, and even though, you know, it was, it was a devastating event, there is a, another side that is, that is quite interesting and looking at the reasons why um, things occurred the way they did. So um, it's, yeah, it is, it is an experience that can be traumatizing, but um, from a scientific point of view, it's also very interesting, uh, you know, and, and I always think, Brad, that understanding about the science can also impact on how we plan for those future events. Yeah, that's right. Um, having, you know, coming into the community and seeing the damage from the earthquake and seeing how buildings and people responded, um, that's gives us really good information for going forward. And one of my biggest memories was, um, in the evening, it, it started raining, the earthquake had gone through in the afternoon, and we were walking through these cornfields at the time, trying to follow the fault trace, and you come to a family, and, and the, the family would be really quite happy, um, they seemed to be in control, and then you'd wander off again through the corn, following the fault, and you come to the next farmhouse, and those people were, were had really lost it, you know, they, they were pretty unhappy, they weren't, weren't enjoying the whole experience at all and it took me a while to realize what it was and the first family you came to that was in commas happy they had actually had a hot meal they were standing around the barbecue outside in their caravan and the next group that you came to their house was damaged it was raining they were out in the hay barn and they had no way to cook a meal um, they didn't have a hot meal and that was the real difference was those people were able to look after themselves. One group could and one group couldn't. Mm. And that, that was making a real big difference on that first night. So that's really interesting because, you know, part of that preparation side of things is making sure that in the event of a natural hazard emergency, you've got your, your water, you've got some food and something that you can uh, heat it or cook it on. You know, it might be the barbecue, a, a gas cooker or something like that is 
is what we're all encouraged to make sure that we have. So, so those primary needs are met. So, um, uh, are earthquakes the main hazard in Aotearoa, Brad? Uh, that, that's a really good question. Um, I would have to say no. Um, the climate hazards are much, much more frequent and much, much more damaging. Um, a lot more money is lost every year or paid out by insurance companies for climate, you know, that's rainfall, flooding, type events, um, storms, the hurricanes. We think of the hurricane handling and the hurricane season. So you'll experience a climate event basically every year or every other year there will be a significant climate event whereas a large-scale damaging earthquake is only going to come around maybe every 10 to 100 years um, so there is quite different time periods um, but that was a really neat question um, because we do have a lot of earthquakes in New Zealand well that's right um, New Zealand is on a plate boundary um, an earthquake is generated where a rock breaks <laughs> and New Zealand has been bent and changed in shape the whole time. So we have lots and lots of small earthquakes, somewhere in the area of 20 to 30,000 a year, but they're not damaging. And in fact, many of those, probably over 80%, we don't even feel. It's just our instruments record them. Um, so we are really talking about the top 5% of the earthquakes a year that have been felt, um, and only 1% or 2% of those that may be even starting to do damage. Now, I, I think I might have forgotten to mention uh, our, to our two classrooms that are with us this morning. If you've got a question, probably the best thing to do is to uh, click on the chat icon and just post it into the chat. And um, so you'll see that um, Barry's just posted a couple in there um, now, which, which we're answering. So if you've got a question you'd like Brad to answer this morning, uh, pop it in the chat. And so Barry also put in there, is anywhere in Aotearoa safe from earthquakes? Um, <clears throat> the short answer to that is no. Um, earthquakes will occur everywhere in New Zealand. However, there are some places um, where earthquakes are much more frequent or large earthquakes are more frequent. As I mentioned, um, we are across the plate boundary and Northland is about the furthest away from the plate boundary, um, as is the Dunedin um, Southland area. So up on the, the top left and the bottom right of New Zealand, um, that, that they're the pieces that are the furthest away from the plate boundary. So they experience less earthquakes, but unfortunately they can experience earthquakes. There's absolutely nowhere that's um, safe or, or there is a zero earthquake risk in New Zealand. It's something we all have to live with. Yeah, well, that's really interesting because I live in the Bay of Islands, and apparently there was an earthquake recently that was felt up there. So um, I didn't, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, earthquake, I remember that one in the Bay of Islands because there's also a volcanic field up there, so we were interested whether it was related to volcanoes or the plate boundary. Um, yeah, they're, they're rare, but they're not zero. Mm. That's the so um, there's a question here from... Uh, Collingwood. Collingwood Area School. Uh, how deep down are the tectonic plates? Okay, that's a really good question, guys. The, the Pacific plate is coming in and it's colliding with New Zealand, or we're part of the Australian plate, and it's getting pushed down underneath. And it's where the two meet, which is my fingernails and my knuckle here. 
um, they rub against each other. And that's what, if you pretend you're a plate boundary and push your hands together, you'll see how my fingers are bending. Um, that's just a natural, and that bending is what's bending the rocks in New Zealand and making them break. So the plate boundary is basically at the surface where they meet, but the piece going down underneath, and my fingertips here, that goes down about 180 to 200 kilometers. And when that melts down there, um, that's what generates the processes for our volcanoes. But this is an earthquake theme today. So we're just dealing with where the two plates meet and it's the shallow portion and that sort of top um, like 10 to 15 kilometers where they're rubbing against each other, they're locking and then the rocks start bending until eventually you bend them too far and then they break and generate the bigger earthquake. Or you might get a situation like this, it's pushing down and then it slips back up. You're sort of pushing and then one slips. Um, there's lots of different processes across the plate boundary, mm. but the earthquakes are generated in the shallow, what for us we call shallow, which is like 10 or 15 kilometres. Yeah, and I think from memory, he was talking about the different different processes that are happening, and those different processes can cause different effects that we feel. So different forms of shaking. Yeah. So um, when the ground breaks, it, it, sometimes it's in compression that ground's been pushed towards each other. Other times it's extension; the ground has been pulled apart. Um, so they cause different types of earthquakes. And the third type is horizontal when the ground is moving sideways. Um, and that's what the, the big faults like the Wellington and Wairapa fault, Alpine fault, they tend to move sideways. Um, in this area here, in the Bay of Plenty, we have extension. So the rocks have been stretched apart and snapped. And in other places, it's pretty rare in New Zealand, we have them coming towards each other in compression. And they push against each other and slide past and break. So it's depending on which process is happening in your area as the type of earthquake that will occur. Barry, Kim said they still can't hear. Are you picking up the sound okay? I think I think they just meant you must need to have the um, Brad close to the computer and have the computer's microphone tilted around towards him. So I think it's getting better. I don't even know where the microphone is. <laughs> so you're coming across louder than Brad is all I'm saying. But it's not too bad now. I boosted the I boosted the volume on my end here as well. Okay. Uh, so there's a question here from Collingwood. How much has the tectonic plates lifted since information has been recorded? <laughs> okay. Um, the, the deformation across the, the plate boundary is about 50 millimetres a year. So about, about two inches or 50 millimetres is how much New Zealand is moving across that plate boundary every year. That doesn't sound like very much, but if we think about it in geological terms and processes for, say, a century, that's five metres. So where we are here in Matata today, for example, we're moving north at about 50 millimetres a year and about five millimetres to the east. So in 100 years' time, we're going to be five metres further north than where we are today. And we're also going to be lifted up um, about a metre. This area is rising about 10 millimetres a year. So in a century's time, 100 years' time, we're going to have come up one metre and gone north about five metres. Wow. It's amazing. 
Um, so how big are the tectonic plates is another question here from Collingwood. That's <laughs> a very good question. Um, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Um, the New Zealand's spread across two plates, so most of us are on what's called the Australian plate. So Australia is part of it, and we're part of it. It goes all the way across to India. Um, so India is part of it, and that part of New Zealand, part, all of Australia and India are all moving north, and that's India is colliding with China, um, and that's forcing up the Himalaya mountains and causing that plate boundary. So if you can grab Google Earth or something and measure the distance from New Zealand to India um, and from India to Antarctica, that will give you an idea of how big the Australian plate is. The Pacific plate, on the other hand, makes up most of the Pacific Ocean. So you'd have to measure the distance from New Zealand across to Chile um, and up to Hawaii, Alaska, um, Japan. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's you know, 10,000 kilometres old up to Japan. So. Real big. Yeah, massive. Really big. Uh, another question here, how do seismographs work? Uh, that's an, another really good question. When an earthquake occurs, the ground moves, and the easiest way to think about it um, is like a, a piece of string with a weight on the end of it. And when the ground moves, I'm just showing on the other camera, um, the, the pendulum starts to swing with the ground motion. And uh, in its simplest form, uh, a seismograph is just basically a weight that's hanging, and when the ground moves, the pendulum starts to move. Inside there, we have some electronics, we have a coil and a magnet, and we pass the, the magnets on the, the um, string, and the magnet is moving through the coil, and that creates an electric current, and then we measure that electric current. And as it swings backwards and forwards, we get positive and negative currents. Um, so a seismograph is actually just a very sensitive voltmeter, but it starts off as basically like a pendulum and something that can move and swing freely with, with the ground motion. And so it records it records the, the squiggles, doesn't it, that um, kind of give you an idea of the shape? Yeah. <clears throat> when you look at a seismograph, you'll see like an S wave, um, the thing just but it is actually the sensor swinging backwards and forwards, so it's going out to the left, out to the right, out to the left, and that gets transformed onto the piece of paper um, or the graph on the computer, and, and then you see it as a waveform. Because it used it used to be that it actually literally had a pen or pencil that that moved and drew it on the That's paper right. directly, didn't it? That's right. Um, the well, the original seismographs um, actually had a very fine diamond tip and it's scraped across a smoked piece of glass so you've got a piece of glass and you held it in the smoke above a, a candle and you got the carbon on the glass and then you had a, this, a very fine pendulum and it swang and scratched on the glass then we our voltmeters um, became more sophisticated and we were able to put those into recorders that recorded plus or minus voltages and we had a pen attached to it and that drew an ink on the paper and that became really, really messy. <laughs> when you had a big earthquake, the pen would flick backwards and forwards really fast and ink would come off. Um, and our, our, our seismic labs were really messy places because we just had ink splattered all over the wall from the big earthquakes. Fascinating. Um, just going back to a question that Barry posted earlier, um, 
and it was probably came from that story you told about going through the cornfields and reaching families in various states of um, wellness. So he, he said, how, how important do you think the behaviour of citizens is during an earthquake? Yeah, the, the real key, um, it's not so much the behaviour, people understanding that they have to look after themselves, that there's not going to be support in that first 24 hours to maybe 72 hours after an earthquake. Um, everybody in your community is going to be impacted. And so it becomes really important that you empower yourself and you're prepared to look after yourself. And that's where the what the plan stand is designed to do, is to make you think about okay, what am I going to do? What food do I need? Where am I going to get some water from? Um, have you thought about, you know, like today, you're sitting in your classroom, mum and dad are away at work. Have you got a plan with mum and dad, you know, um, to communicate with them? Um, are you going to stay at the school? Are you going to walk home from the school? And things like that. So it's really important just to have a conversation as a family and just, Think about the things you need, who you're going to look after, um, your neighbours, grandparents, things like that. Um, so that's what the whole sort of um, drop cover sh or shake out um, is all about, is just starting to think about, okay, what are the things that are going to impact on me, impact on the family? Um, and one that is often forgotten is your pets. Um, have you got a plan for looking after your pets? And, and yeah, the other is your neighbours. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's going to be certain um, groups or people or, or things that are needing that support immediately after an event. And so you can't expect to be rescued. And a lot of it depends also on where you are and how accessible that might be. It might be that the supplies can't be you can't get supplies brought to you because of the inaccessibility. And so it might take some time if you don't have supplies, emergency supplies, it might take time for, well, first of all, people to realize that you do need something and second, for that, those supplies to get to you. Uh, I remember reading from the Kaikoura event, um, it was about four years ago, um, with the earthquake there that they had used helicopters a lot because the roads were just inaccessible to get supplies to people. Yeah, I mean, just going back to my experience with Edgecombe, I was in Tepuki, just down 30 odd kilometres down the coast, actually installing a seismograph um, because we had some small earthquakes occurring beforehand and we were trying to record those. And I tried to drive uh, up here. Then I went back through the Rotorua Lakes, tried to come up over the Rotomar Hills. That road was blocked off by landslides. So we realized we couldn't get through that way. So we came back down to the coast. The road along the coast was also blocked by landslides. But fortunately, um, along the coast road here, there's actually a railway line that's a little bit further away from the cliff. So it's got the cliff, you've got the road, and then you've got the railway line. And because naturally we had a nice strong four wheel drive vehicle so we actually went out onto the railway line and we drove along the railway line with sort of thump, thump, thump um, on the railway sleepers. And we were pretty confident there'd be no trains coming. Um, and, that, and we managed to get around the landslides um, along the coast road and get into the area. Mm. So 
there's a question from Miss Smith. I'm not sure what school that is. And I think you've kind of answered this already, Brad, but um, about with with uh, regards to how earthquakes start and the uh, the pressures within the tectonic plates. That's yeah. Um, it all comes back to the motion across the plate boundary. It's bending the rocks. And if you think about the rocks, they're elastic and they bend. And think of a small piece of timber or a twig um, or your plastic ruler on your desk. You can bend that. If you bend it too far, it snaps. And that snapping is the earthquakes. So an earthquake is when we break a rock. So the earthquake starts by pressure across the plate boundary bending the rocks. And that's, the, that's where the process starts. You start bending the rocks, and then eventually the rocks will be bent too far, and the rocks will snap, and that gives you an earthquake. Mm. It's hard to think of rock bending. <laughs> um, if you're driving along the side of the road, um, not so much here in the volcanic area, but along lots of the coast in New Zealand, you'll see all those beautiful layers of rocks, mm. and they're tilted up. Mm. Um, or sometimes you'll even see lovely big S-bends in them. Those rocks all started out dead flat. They were laid down in the sea and they were horizontal. But the processes across the plate boundary are slowly tilting them and bending them. Um, and that's where the earthquakes, you can actually go and look at those rocks and you'll see the beautiful flat layers and then you'll see some of the layers offset. Mm. That is an earthquake preserved in the geology, yeah. that break in the rocks. And that's sort of a big part of your work, isn't it, is reading those signs in the landscape to see, to, to, especially to learn about those past events. That's right. Um, <clears throat> as a geologist, the best way to describe my job is as a detective. And, and our, our crime scene is the earth, the outside around us. And then we go out and we look at the road cuttings, look at the cliffs um, and try to work out the story of what's happened there. Mm. Really interesting. Um, now, there's another question from Miss Smith. Brad's not a tsunami expert, but I'm wondering if you know, Brad, how big a tsunami can get. Yeah, um, tsunamis, um, there's two ways of measuring them. Um, and one is when the tsunami comes inland, is how far it's come inland. Um, and the other is how high. So if you have a relatively flat coast, um, not very much gradient, the tsunami might go a long way inland. Um, you know, here in the Mediterranean area or between here and Fokatani, it's almost flat inland for like 20 to 30 kilometres. So a tsunami that's only one or two metres high could go as much as 20 kilometres inland. Um, so some people measure how far it's gone. Other people measure how far it's gone above sea level. Um, so a one or two metre high tsunami in some places can go a long way inland, but one or two metres high is not very high. We saw the one in Japan um, in 2006, um, and that reached sort of 10 to 12 metres above sea level. So there's two ways of measuring it. It's the height above sea level or the distance it's gone inland. Awesome. Kim Powell from Collingwood, they, they have to go. They're going to um, come back and watch the recording of this later. I think we're having some, some technical issues there with sound. But we, we've got to crack on with our day too. So, um, hey, look, thanks very much, Brad, for your time this morning. It's really been fascinating listening to Brad give his answers this morning. And 
yeah, sorry, Miss Smith. I, I understand you're having some problems with sound too. Must be something in the weather. <laughs> um, but um, do, do go on and listen to the recording. There's been some really neat information this morning and looking forward to talking more with Brad later as we go through our day looking at earthquake um, science and preparedness. So just a reminder, again, this web conference is recorded. You can listen to it later. There will be a link up sometime today. Check out the videos and look through the Google Earth tour at the images. And it also features the photos and tells the give us an account of what we got up to yesterday. So it's goodbye from us. Matewa. Have a great rest of your day. And that brings the Learns Web Conference to an end. Ka kite anō. Hi.